The Moreland Spingarn Research Center is the largest and most comprehensive repository of books, documents, and ephemera on the global black experience, including the personal and official papers of Kwame Nkrumah, Paul Robeson, Elaine Locke, Mary Frances Berry, Dr. Benjamin Mays, Vernon Jordan, and Amiri Baraka, to name but a few from its over 700 collections. Two years ago, a class of 1996 Howard alumnus returned to lead the center. Amongst the many ways he is rejuvenating it is by establishing an international Black Writers Festival. Let's dig into it. Welcome to HU to You, the podcast where we bring today's important topics and stories from Howard University to you. I'm Kweli Zuccheri, Howard alumnus and today's host. I'm here with Dr. Benjamin Tolton, Howard alumnus, African studies scholar and author, and director of the Moreland Spingarn Research Center, or MSRC, at Howard University. He is also the lead organizer for the MSRC's International Black Writers Festival, which will take place September 26th to the 29th of this year. Peace, Dr. Tolton. Thank you for joining me today. Peace, Quilly. This is exciting. Thank you. Yeah, I'm very excited to have this discussion as well. I've been waiting a while. So first I want to talk about the center, and then we can move on to the Writers' Festival. So to begin with, renowned author and journalist and Howard alum and faculty member, Ta-Nehisi Coates, describes his own transformative experience as an undergraduate who studied daily in the MSRC, where his father, book publisher and former Black Panther, Paul Coates, worked at the time. In his book, Between the World and Me, speaking to his son, he wrote about the university's importance to the African diaspora, stating, quote, I was admitted to Howard University, but formed and shaped by the Mecca. These institutions are related, but not the same. Howard University is an institution of higher education concerned with the LSAT, magna cum laude, and Phi Beta Kappa. The Mecca is a machine crafted to capture and concentrate the dark energy of all African peoples and inject it directly into the student body, unquote. And I just love that last sentence. Yeah, we could talk about that for the whole podcast. That was, that's fantastic. <laughs> he goes on to say that, quote, one of the greatest collections of books could be found in the MSRC, where your grandfather once worked. Moreland held archives, papers, collections, and virtually any book ever written by or about black people. Dr. Tolden, you attended Howard with Tanahesi, where you two became close friends. And the center's been around a long time. It turns 110 this year. Can you tell us some about your own experience with the center as an undergraduate and then about its mission and history? Yeah, I think Tanahasi captures it amazingly well. That's his memory of it, and it's pretty much my memory of it, my feeling about the center. I started going there as a sophomore. I was a history major, as was Tanahasi. And back then, this is the 90s, we, we were required to go to Moreland to do research, to read, to write book reviews. It was mandatory for most history majors, political science majors, anthropology majors, African and studies majors. And so it was a bustling place. It's like 60 seats in there, and almost all of them were full in the 90s. And this is where a lot of our friendships were formed, Ta-Nehisi and I, and many, many people we can name. We hung out there as undergrads, as, as well as doing research there. It's a special place, just the energy there. You never knew who you were going to encounter, what scholar, graduate students were hanging out in there. The energy was amazing and a lot of synergy in there, but you described it as the largest repository and library on the global black experience. And what's important is that it's private. So we can get into the Schomburg, which I love the Schomburg. Grew up much of my uh, youth in Harlem, so I, I love Harlem, I love the Schomburg. 
the King Center, there's the Library of God, many places you can study the global black experience. But Moreland is private. The Schomburg is public. And it's, to me, that's significant distinction because when you're private, it's a little more difficult because you have to raise the money to run it. You don't just get the government money. But this is a repository by and about black people around the world, controlled by black people from around the world. And we decide what's important. We decide what's significant. We decide the collections that we, that we hold. We control the space. So I think that's, that distinction is worth homing in on and meditating on because it's very important. Mm. No, I think that's key to say that black people have control over decision-making around how it gets used, right? You talk about that's historiography right. and things like that. That's right. It's not just the information itself, but how it's framed, how it's used, where it goes, who's connected, et cetera. Precisely. Particularly in this age when people have weaponized history. Of course, our history has always been under attack, but we are in large part defined by our history, so controlling that is very important. So Moreland is significant because we decide, okay, these are the books, these are the archives, this is what's significant for understanding the global black experience. That's important for the past, but also important for the present. But then also in terms of the future, we decide what new collections and new books will be in there. So not only saying the past defines us, but we're also defining the future. And so I feel that we're in a very powerful position. Yeah, the narratives that come about because of what's accessible and who is controlling that and framing that narrative is key. So it's, yeah, it's huge. That's right. Can you tell us more about your current role there? What challenges and accomplishments have you experienced thus far? Yeah, it's, it's just listening to the introduction. It gave me chills because, again, I described how I interacted with Moreland as a student. And now my job is to talk about Moreland. I do it for a living. I've been given this incredible task of moving Moreland in, into the future. I was a history professor at Temple University for 13 years. Before that, I was at Hofstra University. Uh, I left Howard in 96, and I got a PhD at University of Chicago. I was just planning to just be a history professor. Coming back to Howard has been incredible. It's coming, really coming home, literally. And so I've been here for almost two years, but I don't feel like I, I don't feel new. I feel like this, again, this is home for me. And being in Founders just feels very comfortable and natural. We have a phenomenal staff. But the time that I describe, the 90s, we describe it, ta describes it as this amazing period and this amazing space. But it was actually the low point of Moreland. Because you also talked about Paul Coates, ta father, who worked in Moreland, I'm not quite sure how long, at least 10 years. When he was here in the 80s, late 70s, 80s, Moreland had a staff of about 50 people. They had an oral history project. We have the Black Press Archive. There are many uh, librarians in there, reference librarians. They had a publications division, so they were putting out publications. The staff was much larger. When I came in the 90s as a student, the staff was probably about 10 and shrinking. When I arrived in January 2022, when they introduced me to the staff, I believe they're not including the student employees, there were seven people in the room, one of whom was on his way out. So we started with the staff, of, I started with a staff of six. Cause you can imagine, right? We, we were founded as a center in 1973. We became Moreland Spring Garden Center, founded in 1910 as the Moreland Foundation, Moreland Library. Continued to grow into the 80s and then the 90s we fell off. I'm happy to say, though, because we have the tremendous support of the administration and we've had some grants, Mellon Foundation grant, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, we've been able to staff up. 
very, very quickly. And so we're, we're in the teens now. We just were onboarding a, a new archivist today. <laughs> in fact, she's online at her orientation today. We onboarded another archivist two weeks ago. And we have a, a chief librarian for the first time in a decade and a half. And we have a rare books librarian now for the first time ever. And we just I have a new reference library started about a month ago. So we're in the high teens pushing toward the 20s. So it's capacity building right capacity now. Capacity building. Because you mentioned all these collections that we have. First of all, we have this huge library, the largest privately owned library on the global black experience in the world. And I'm very proud that it's at Howard University. But imagine having this amazing library, but no librarian. Yeah. And so we've changed that. We have these collections. We have upwards of 700 plus collections. That's just in the manuscript division because we're the university's archive as well. So we get the president's papers, board of trustees, athletic departments. So many of these programs are having anniversaries. Swim team has an anniversary. Swim team had an amazing season last year. The women's basketball team has an anniversary. We have their collections as well. In addition to personal and professional papers of many of our professors. So that's the university archive. And we have an amazing university archivist, Sonia Woods. She cooks with a high flame with grease every single day. I love her to death. And then we have the manuscript division. That's the papers that you described. That's Amiri Baraka. Can you imagine? We go right downstairs in UGL right now, Amiri Baraka's personal papers are, are yeah, that's there. Incredible. Elaine Locke. What is the Harlem Renaissance without Elaine Locke? Professor of philosophy here at Howard University, arguing against this idea that Africans have no history, have no role in shaping the humanities. His papers are with us. And so that's the Mary Frances, very Congressional Black Caucus, Trans-Africa. We can go on on Islanda Robeson, we can go on. But only 250 of those 700 plus collections are processed and available to the public. And that's because of the staffing issue. We accumulated more collections than we could process and make available to the public. Now, we make special dispensation for people. So if you want to come and see, for example, Charles Diggs, founder of the Congressional Black Caucus, influential in founding Trans-Africa, one of the champions of Africa in Congress from the 1960s until uh, 1979, we have his papers, a huge collection. We are a public service institution. So of course, if you want to study Charles Diggs, we're not going to say no, we might. but will make special dispensation, even though those papers aren't processed. Right. So we have scholars who come and study Charles Diggs. Right. So if someone's aware, they can come at least to access that still a public service. But yes. your goal is to make sure that all these things are more accessible online and advertised and people know what's there and it's much more easy to get to it. Absolutely. So that's moving us into the 21st century with digitization. And digitization is also preservation because we want to preserve these for the next generation. For sure. No, that's so important. Reminds me of, you know, black studies in general was marginalized until the 70s and 80s right. when black students demanded it. That's right. But there were people that were had to build a foundation for that to even become a thing. And then more recently, when you, with the pandemic and police oppression becoming so prominent, mm -hmm. you know, I noticed that all these universities start to say Black Lives Matter on their websites. Like Howard didn't have to say that. You didn't have to say that. That's what it's been about, right? So it's yeah. in the same way. It's like we've been, the center has been doing the work. That's right. And um, other places, it becomes a trend or in vogue. But it's like, no matter what, we're gonna be here and do this work. It's also the small things that historically white institutions will probably miss. For example, we have collections from roller skate clubs in DC. Roller skating was a very, very central part of the black, particularly urban experience through the 1980s. It's coming back, I hear. I think white institutions, curators, archivists, libraries might miss that. Mm. Jack and Jill, that name means something very significant to 
people of African descent in particularly suburban spaces in the United States, but a white curator might miss that. But we recognize why that matters. Activists like Sylvia Hill, or even again, Charles Diggs, we understand their importance and the important role that they played in, uh, in, in politics and in culture and in also our connections to the African continent. So that, again, is not just being privately owned, but being conscious of what, what makes these significant. Thank you for all that insight regarding the center. I think we need to move on to talking about the Writers' Festival. So the original National Black Writers' Conferences, sponsored by Howard University's Institute for Arts and Humanities, took place between 1974 and 1983, and the MSRC revived this tradition last year with its inaugural festival. This will be its second annual iteration. Can you tell us about the International Black Writers' Festival, its history, and its purpose? Again, this goes back to conversations with the ta Coates. We, we returned to Howard around the same time, and we were just thinking about Howard's past being at the core of conversations about the Black experience and lamenting that I think that had fallen off mm. a bit, although people were still engaged in it. Not to say that we, two of us, returned with our capes on and said, hey, now we're important again. <laughs> Howard was doing great work before we arrived, and it'll be doing great like work. The yellow superheroes in my book. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> But, but also just thinking about that, like you said, the Black Writers Conference that began here in, in the 70s then moved on to Medgar Evers in Chicago State. We were considering all the important black thinkers that are at historically white institutions now. We're thinking about all the awards that are given to artists, activists from white institutions. So how can Howard be at the center of that conversation mm -hmm. again? So the idea was mm -hmm. to bring the Writers Conference back, but a Black Writers Conference still exists. It's an organization. So we thought about two things. One, to make it a festival like the New Yorker Festival. Mm -hmm. We're not presenting papers, it's not a workshops, but it's, it's conversation. The other part of it is Howard has always been, Moreland has always been global. Howard has always been globally black, right? Diversity and blackness. Mm. And so we wanted to make the festival international, purposefully inviting writers based on the continent, writers based in Europe and the Caribbean, Spanish-speaking writers on the Black experience to be in conversation with each other. So last year, it was really just put interesting people, who do we want to see in conversation? Who do we think is significant shaping the narrative right now? What's important? This year, and it was, I think it was a great success. Of course, there are many things that we could have done better, but it was, it was a successful event. Students are still talking about it. And what I found most generative is that you had students and elders and mid-career folks in conversation with each other, mm -hmm. particularly after sessions, when they're mingling outside and we had Sankofa selling books, which was fantastic. So to have Hakeem Adabudi in conversation with a sophomore at Howard. Right. Paul Coates in conversation with Michael Ralph, who's professor of African-American studies here. And it all flowed really well, just the intergenerational so. nature of it really. You I could, think you so. You could feel it when you were there. I think so. And it was really wonderful. You had people like Derricka Purnell, fantastic writer, powerful force on stage, hanging out with her children, her, her two young sons walking around. Right. It just, the energy was, it was electric. This year, I felt rather than just having amazing writers in conversation. I wanted to be deliberate about the, a theme, to have everyone thinking about meditating on a particular idea. Going back to the, the germ for the festival, which was bringing conversations 
among writers, activists, and scholars in conversation at Howard to make Howard the center of black intellectual thought, we think about why we gather. Why do we still come together as black people? Why do we still have HBCUs when we have deans of schools of journalism at Ivy Leagues that are black? Right. Presidents of Ivy League universities that are black. Penn Prize winners, Booker Prize winners, MacArthur Genius Award winners that are black. Mm -hmm. Why do we still gather? And so that's the theme this year, to think about why we still come together as Africans and people of African descent to have conversation. Why do we still need to do that? So it's a, it's a question and a provocation. Mm. It's to say we do gather and then we'll think about why that is. Of course, I have my answers. Well, actually, yeah, I'd like to hear that. I, I want to say, too, that, you know, I attended the festival last year, sort of the inaugural rejuvenation of the festival. And, yeah, I thought it was phenomenal considering some of the circumstances and it was the first time back. So I had a great experience and just loved the energy and the dialogue and the, the black excellence and the critical thought that was just put through the dialogue. And then you saw how excited I was and you recruited me to be on the organizing committee this year. So it's been great to be a part of the process. Kind of think you took advantage of my excitement there, but um, I'm happy to be a part of it. So what, what's your answer to that question? Why do well, we gather? I want to I I take a chance to throw it right back at you because everyone I asked last year to come, with the exception of, of maybe two, said yes right away. Kianga Yamada-Taylor, MacArthur Award winner, uh, I think she was a runner-up for the Pulitzer Prize for her book, she had never been invited to Howard. Right away, she said yes. Mm. Haki Marabudi said yes. Sonia Sanchez said yes. So I'm actually advertising these are some of the people who were, who mm. were there last year. Derek Pennell, right? she said yes. Salamisha Tillett, never spoken Howard before, award-winning author, she said yes. Um, Marcia Chatlin, Pulitzer Prize-winning author, she said yes. Mm. Why are they responding so enthusiastically from an invitation from Howard University? All of these people, with the exception of Haki, are at white institutions. This year, Vincent Brown, award-winning author of many books, including Tacky's Revolt, scholar at Yale University. I invited him, immediately said yes. Mm. Never been invited to Howard University before, never spoke here. Monique Badassi is gonna be in conversation with, with Vincent Brown. She said yes, and we have a hip hop panel. All of them said yes. So the question is, you know, why do people, why are people still drawn to Howard when there's so much going on at these historically white institutions? Why were you so excited last year to be part of the festival. Well, you know, that's, um, I don't understand why anyone is anywhere else, honestly, <laughs> except at HBCUs when it comes to higher ed, because I've been here 14 years and, you know, it's having a black space first and foremost, right? This is not necessarily gonna be an institution that leads a revolution for black people, right? But it is a black space where a dialogue can take place and certain organizations can exist and organizing can exist that's just not gonna exist elsewhere. There's a lot of things here I don't necessarily agree with that, right? But it is a black space, our space. Everything can exist within it. And I think, you know, I think about Manning Marable talking about the black intellectual tradition. As a graduate student at Howard, you know, one of the things I loved was that I noticed that students in my cohort, I was in the psychology program, some of them had come from PWIs because they just didn't get the support they needed for the type of research they wanted to do. Because for them, it was about, I need to produce knowledge and I wanna answer these questions, but also, how is it relevant to actually applying what I learned to my community, to my people? How are we going to use this information to improve our conditions, improve our lives? Like, it's relevant for a reason. It's not just for knowledge's sake, right? And that is that tradition of an activist scholar that I think pervades the university and most HBCUs, you know? Like, it's what are we doing with this information together, right, as we build this knowledge? So I think, you know, that's a huge reason to gather. And I think a lot of the scholars that came 
some of them understood that, but some of them, yeah, they want to come to a space where they can have a certain conversation and say things that everyone's going to understand and, That's right. and build on, right? It's, it's different from other places where you probably have to prove yourself, number one, to be legitimate, right? Or to be considered, you know, legitimate. And number two, you just can't build the same way and have the same dialogue. So it is a space, first and foremost. Couldn't have said right? it better myself. That's yeah. one of the reasons why we gather. And I, I feel like at Howard and at the International Black Writers Festival, as you're saying, you, you don't have to spend a lot of time on context. Right, all right. right. We're all coming from the similar places, but is, again, diversity in blackness right, right. is significant. But I, I feel that at, we're not just together because we're black. Like, let's just get that off the table. We all have that in common. There are other issues mm -hmm. that bind us and tie us together. We had a great conversation at last year's Writers' Festival with Trisha Hersey, and the NAP ministry. And then we got into a great conversation about capitalism and its consequences for the black experience. It was, it was a, right, there's a lot of intersectionality. A lot of intersectionality. This year I'm looking forward to, we have a banned books panel with Ibram Kendi, Nicole Hannah-Jones, and Ta-Nehisi. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. I'm one. super excited about that. Mickey Kendall's supposed to be there as well. So these are conversations that we could have internally, but also speaking, speaking outward, which makes me very excited. And so I'm really excited about that Banned Books mm -hmm. panel. Banned Books, you know, it's a form of censorship that has greatly increased during the past few years. And it's mostly affected literature that illuminates the experiences of black and brown people, as well as people that identify as LGBTQ+. So why do you think Banned Books is a very important subject? And why do you think we've seen a recent rise in censorship efforts? As we make progress, there's always this pushback. This just goes back mm -hmm. to the founding of this country. Right. There's a particular idea of what it means to be an American. There's an, an aspiration that they've never achieved, but they've always been going toward that. As we make racial progress, racists make progress as well. Mm -hmm. So this is part of the history of the United States, censorship, deciding what is legitimate legally, intellectually, socially, culturally. And this is just part of that tradition. Mm. And the, the, what's important is that we always just keep moving, moving forward. But it's interesting now that we look at Florida and, and Texas, there's some other, other spots that they're not having the success that I think they believed they, they would. I'm amazed at my colleagues who, who are able to teach in Florida hmm. and, and yeah, Texas. But what we'll do at the festival is engage these questions. And not just to say, okay, these books shouldn't be banned, but let's really get into what are they really doing when they are banning books. They know that these books are still going to be circulating, right. but they're creating a narrative. Right, right. Right. They're saying these things are not legitimate. These are not significant for the American experience. But this is part of the American tradition. Right. No, but so was the pushback. Right. So was protest. Right. So was our response to it. That's also part of the American tradition. For sure. I think it's a good sign, in fact, when you see people pushing back against some form of progress, because that means something good has to be happening. That's right. Um, and I agree, though, that it is somewhat of a smokescreen to larger issues. You're trying to mobilize certain people and energize certain people that have a, that want to uh, make America great again, let's say, you know, That's quote right. unquote. But I think, yeah, the ironic, if you just look at the irony of banning books in this digital age, everyone's going to start looking for those books that are banned anyway because they become curious at least at minimum, right? So I'm sure, you know, Amazon sales and things for these authors has just blown up as every time they get banned, they probably get more book sales, you know, because people are finding them around the country, even if it's banned in one small and place. And that's what's been know? happening. And libraries doing displays on these banned books and festivals like ours having sessions on banned books. But how, how un-American... It's very American. Very American. But <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> in terms of America's image of itself, right. the idea that you will censor. Right. 
a friend or my colleague from South Africa said, this is when I was at Hofstra, he said, this is after the 9-11, he said, you in this country don't know what fascism looks like. Mm. So you don't know what fascism appears when it's coming down the pike. Mm. I think black folks know what fascism looks mm. like. We lived under fascism until about 65. Mm -hmm. Mm. But he's saying Americans in general don't know. So all these, these creeping initiatives, banning books, censorship, all these debates, that's, that's, that's creeping fascism. Mm -hmm. But it's also part of the American experience. It definitely is. <laughs> Another panel, which I also happen to be moderating, will feature prolific Africana studies heavyweights and also builders of independent educational institutions, including Anthony Browder and Dr. Safisha Carol Lee, amongst others. The discussion will examine different approaches and frameworks for Africana culture-centric education for children of African descent. So for you as a scholar activist for Africana studies, and even more importantly, as a parent of black children, what impact do you think such educational approaches has on children of African descent, both K through 12 and in college, as well as maybe at home and in other spaces? I'm so glad this panel is gonna be part of the festival. I'm really happy about that and excited, looking forward to it. And it just goes back to what we speaking about, controlling our spaces, controlling our education. The evidence is out there, how it just changes people's confidence, their mentality, small things like just traveling to Africa, learning about, we have a group of, they're not the Karst STEM scholars, but they're the humanities version that just launched. Hmm. And they took a two week trip to Africa, to Ghana specifically, I was there at the same time. Hmm. And I ran into a young man at Target yesterday who was part of that trip, and he said he's, he won't be the same again. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So just being exposed to this type of education and being exposed to it by people who share your experience is empowering. And we live in a society where policy and culture has been shaped and framed around disempowering us beyond symbolics, right? We always, I, I, we can get a whole conversation about what diversity means. I myself am not, am not a diversity guy. Mm. But when you have institutions catered toward educating people of African descent for them, and by them, the change is evident. I mean, all the studies have shown these students just are more confident and mm -hmm. perform extremely well. But I think the panel is also important because we're losing a lot of these institutions. Now, when they were thriving, many of them were already small, whether it's an African-centered school or a cultural organization, a civic organization. Uh, they were always tend to be kind of small, but we have fewer mm -hmm. in number. Mm -hmm. So we need to have this conversation. Yeah, no, I obviously... Agree, and I hope <laughs> people attend the panel and can really have a robust conversation because I think that type of socialization can just exist on so many levels, mm -hmm. right? And and there's so many different dynamics to consider and how to optimize that. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm really excited about that. Yeah, I was on the I'm on the board of a cultural organization, Evital Cultural Arts Academy in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. been around almost 30 years, and the different groups of students that come through there, it's a, they teach um, capoeira, they do African mm. dance, drumming, and they have a heritage program they teach about African and African-American Caribbean history. You see the difference in these students when they reach college. It's a, it's a K through 12 program, even into young adulthood. You see the difference in them. Mm. The confidence, their knowledge, just having a sense of self and the ways in which they navigate the world, you see the difference. I, could, I, I see those students, I see Ifeital students, and I see other students. I, I could just tell the difference. Hmm. I agree. So just to round us out, what can people expect to get out of attending? And how can they attend and, and find out more information about the festival? Well, this podcast is a great start. We're also going to do some social media posts beginning this week. 
You could also visit our website, msrc.howard.edu, and there'll be some links to the festival there. If you are on campus, pass through Sankofa Books in the next couple of days. We'll have flyers there. But just follow us at MorelandHU on Twitter. Oh, it's X now, isn't it? It's not Twitter anymore. Oh, yeah, What's right it called? X. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. It's called yeah. X now. If, if uh... Yeah, so more, <laughs> at MorelandHU on all of our socials, particularly Instagram. And you'll see flyers around campus. We have a short story slam that we're going to announce for students. We have a poetry slam for the students. There'll mm-hmm. be some readings. But all of the events will take place in Founders Library browsing room and also hopefully in the digital auditorium in Blackburn. We haven't set that up yet because we have some, I think some larger crowd willing to accommodate for some of these sessions, including our keynote conversation between ta Coates and Walter Mosley, which is going to be amazing. Yeah, that's going to be great. Thank you for coming to our podcast, Dr. Tolton. This is HU to You, the podcast where we dig into today's important topics and stories from Howard University to you. I'm Kweli Zuccheri, today's host, and thank you for listening. HU, you know... For more stories from Howard University, visit our award-winning Howard Magazine at magazine.howard.edu and our award-winning news and information hub, The Dig, at thedig.howard.edu. Thank you.